Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. Let's just give one more hand to our amazing kids who just killed the game. Amazing. That was fantastic. I love you to see so many personality types in those, you know, 30, 40 kids. My wife and I were just talking about our, our daughter's two now, but we were like, is she going to be the girl who's just like so into it that she knows every word, every dance move, or is she going to be the one picking her nose and waving at us? It's, it's going to be one of the other. I don't think there's a lot of room for middle with ours. It's going to be one or the other. We're just going to have to wait a few years and find out. Uh, my name is Bryson. It's great to meet you. If we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here on on staff, uh, and I'm excited. All right, cool. It doesn't take much to get some applause around here. This is a good morning. Okay, uh, but we're continuing this series called The Gift because we're here in December. We're officially in mid-December. Christmas has come. The poinsettias are out. I'm sure you've participated in the, the merriment in some way. You've probably put up your Christmas lights, had a cup or two of hot chocolate, and you have probably been uh, to one or two Christmas parties, and one that everybody loves is the obligatory ugly sweater Christmas party. Has anyone been to an ugly sweater Christmas party at this point? Okay, You're apl- everyone's applauding for everything. God bless, God bless the clappers. Uh, but really, so we've all been to, to one of these, uh, and my wife and I were at one the other night, just Friday night, we were at an ugly sweater Christmas party, and before I get too far into the story, I, I always like to introduce my family if you've never met them. Uh, I have a, a picture of them. This is my family. Um, and so my, my beautiful wife, Rachel, uh, is, uh, is there in the, the burnt orange. She's there in the front row. Um, hi, babe. And then we have uh, our two-year-old is in the front, uh, Olivia, um, looking stylish. I didn't style her that day. Um, you can always tell if it was me or my wife. That was a my wife day. And then Ogden is our little boy who's between us, and he is eight months old. So there's your, your daily dose of breaky. Uh, and here we go. We were just talking uh, the other night. We were at this ugly sweater Christmas party, and uh, we didn't know a ton of people, but it was one of those situations where it seemed like everybody else knew a ton of people. So we happened to have, you know, uh, our own kind of night. It was like a date within a party, mingle a little bit. But when we finally sat down where we were going to sit for the rest of the night, we happened to pick probably the worst seats you can possibly sit at uh, at a, a Christmas party. And that was the seats right across from the dessert table. And I don't know about you, maybe you're here in the sanctuary, you're joining us in Dixon, if you're joining us online, I don't know about you, but when I sit across from the Christmas dessert table, there's something magical that happens. As soon as my plate is empty, somehow more dessert gets on it. It's as if I was thinking, I was thinking, should I get it, and there it is. 
It, it's just out of nowhere, my hand is filled with another brownie, peppermint bark, you know, uh, almond roca, kind of the unsung hero of the dessert table. You have uh, all sorts of these things. It just finds its way into your hand, and it's almost as if your subconscious circumvents your conscious mind and all of the sudden made its way up to the prefrontal cortex and said, you said the last one was it, but nuh-uh, this is it, baby. And you just keep on going. It's as if there's controls in your mind and if there's this steering wheel, and if there's this, uh, this stick shift, it, it might not be in a moment like that that you feel like you're totally in the driver's seat. Or have you ever had a moment where you wish you could take back something that you said? Like you said something that, that you, like as it's coming out of your mouth, if you could visualize, you're like, no, it just keeps on going and I keep on talking and I wish I could just put it back in my mouth. Have you ever had that? Where you, you just end your sentence and you, maybe you're in an argument or disagreement and, and you, you're like thinking it so hard that all of a sudden you say, is that my outside voice that just said that? And... You're there, but it was said, the toothpaste is out of the tube and it can't be unsaid. And you're left saying, why did I just do the thing I just did? Maybe it's not something that you said, maybe it's something that you've done, a pattern that uh, maybe you have when you're nervous and you do that thing you hate. Or you, uh, you keep on uh, having this nervous tick or maybe uh, you have this action you take and you go, why did I just do that? Is any, am I talking to the right people? Have you ever been in that situation where you did something that you're like, why on earth did I just decide to do the thing I just did? It's like there's someone calling the shots that you don't have control over. And Paul uses in Romans 6, he uses kind of a hyperbolic example to, to paint a picture of what this is like and, and how uh, the, the gospel, the story of Jesus interacts with us in this state of, of having areas of our heart, areas of our life that we might not have complete control over. Would you turn to Romans 6? We're gonna be in uh, verses 19 through 23. In Romans 6, that is the sixth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and a letter to the Romans. Um, it's just a little... You know, you'd learn that if you went to VBS back in the day, felt boards and all, what, what? Romans 6, 19 says this. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Let's pray. Jesus, would you be with us? Lord, would you, the living word, make your word come alive? And Father, would we walk out uh, of this moment together, these moments that we have, with not just new things to think about, but ways that we can live our lives, God, in light of this good news. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's pause before we get too far into this, and let's talk about how we read scripture. 
All of us come to this same book, these 66 books of the Bible, with different vantage points, uh, different backgrounds, different uh, upbringings and and such. And and so we have uh, so many perspectives here in this room and online and in Dixon, so many perspectives coming to the exact same thing. And it's impossible here. This text was written almost 2,000 years ago, and Paul is writing it in a context that he knows. It's impossible for him to know what would come later But us 2,000 years ago, it's impossible for us not to know what happened after this. There's this historical gap between us here in 2022 and when Paul wrote this in the first century, and especially in this word that hops out, I'm sure, to so many, and the word is slave. That this word had a meaning there, and it's impossible for us to not look at it through the lens of America's great shame, the enslavement of African people in the 15th through the 19th century here, not just in our country, not just in our state, but in our city, people owned by other people. And us coming to this text from a lot of different vantage points, I understand that someone saying words like this with skin like mine could uh, be triggering in some ways or some ways uh, the things other than that that I say might not even sound like words, but I believe that if we come to the text right now and give it permission to do what it's asking to do with open hands and open hearts, that it actually has the capacity rather than to attach God to a slavery narrative that we can actually have God meet us in a deep place of pain. And that we can come with open hands saying, God, help us, instead of God, I'm guarded to you. As we come into this moment together, looking at the word of God, I believe that it can do that. Paul says in Romans 6, 19, if you look in the New Living Translation, he says, I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all of this. Because in the context that he's writing to the Romans in Rome, Rome was a slave society. It wasn't a foreign narrative to them. You have in the end of Romans, Paul gives some hints to who's in the audience of who's listening to this text. He has in Romans 16, he has 22 personal greetings some shout outs of say hi to this person, encourage this person here. And in those 22 people, some we know were wealthy enough to own homes. Others, there's over a dozen of them that were common names for slaves. It's this diverse, eclectic community. And what else is interesting about uh, the book of Romans, most of the uh, books that Paul writes, the epistles, the letters are to churches that he planted or helped with the foundation of. Romans, he didn't plant. There's actually not evidence that he had been to this church before, but he has these relationships and knows the crowd that he's talking to, but still he chooses this analogy and this narrative because in this context, looking purely uh, in this first century mindset, slavery could mean a lot of different things. You could be a slave for four primary reasons. One was uh, you were captured into slavery. Another uh, would be that you're a prisoner of war. Another would be that you had a sentence you needed to serve because of a crime you committed. But then this fourth one is when you have a debt to pay that you can't pay. You had the option to sell yourself into slavery. And the verbiage here in this text seems to point us that direction because it suggests a willing slavery. He says, offer yourselves. 
He says, don't offer yourselves as slaves to sin. Offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness. He uses the word doulos, uh, highest form and the highest dignity among slaves. It's the the one where you have the choice uh, to say, I will do this. But you don't do it because you want to. You do it because you have to. You sell yourself into slavery in this context. So why would someone be willing to do that? Because there was a need, and they didn't have means for fulfilling it. They had no other option. They'd sell themselves into slavery because there was a need. They had no way of fulfilling it. And they had no other option. And I think that's why we turn to sin, isn't it? It's why we turn, uh, John Ortberg says, uh, sin is often the attempt of meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. And so we have this need and we can't fulfill it on our own. We're all out of options and people do desperate things when they're all out of options. But sin seems to offer us this way out. We're uh, fighting with uh, whether it's loneliness or, or uh, confusion, and, and sin seems to give us an out, the same way that slavery offered itself as a potential solution to the problem that they were facing. Uh, here, uh, just like John Orberg says, that it's often an illegitimate way to, to fill a legitimate need. Uh, here's some examples. We were created to have authority and dominion in Genesis, to dominate the earth, but with nowhere else to turn, we turn to self-promotion. We were created for intimacy with God, but with nowhere else to turn, we turn to physicality with another person. We were created to have peace, but with nowhere else to turn, we turn to substances. We were created to have joy, but with nowhere else to turn, we turn to partying. We were created as beautiful image bearers of God. When we feel like our back's against the wall and we have nowhere else to turn, We become obsessive over the curated image that we want to present to others. People do desperate things when they feel like their back's up against a wall. People do desperate things when they feel like they're all out of options. It's almost like when you're working you know, in the yard, maybe or it's just a hot day in the middle of the summer and, and you feel like I, you know, I'm so parched, I'm so thirsty, so what you go to is a nice refreshing Sprite, it's a nice refreshing Coke, whatever it is. It seems for a moment like it's gonna quench the thirst, but it's only making you more thirsty. That in the moment you say, here's my out to this discomfort I'm feeling, but in the end, it's only going to make you more thirsty. We look at sin like that. Now, anyone who drank a Coke in the last week is like, oh my gosh. It's an analogy. I'm using this analogy so that you can understand simple terms. He just said it. It's an analogy. I drank a Coke this week. You You have a Coke and it only makes you more thirsty. Likewise, sin offers us this mirage of a way out. Meanwhile, we're just searching for fulfillment in empty spaces. What started is just a quick route to what you wanted suddenly owns you. And what started is just a cheap fix in a way 
has become a routine and a routine became a habit and a habit became a pattern and a pattern became a slave driver in itself. That what started is just a time you felt bad about yourself and thought you'd uh, kind of solve it with some retail therapy and now you just can't stop spending money you don't have. What started as maybe uh, some texts with somebody else that were a little bit inappropriate and you knew it was wrong, but it was just a couple of texts and now it's evolved to something so much more. What started as just a little bit of need and and, uh, the register's always just a little bit off anyway, so I just need some help and it's evolved to so much more. What started as something that seemed so small, just like the brownie at the party seems to find its way back into your hand again. And you ask yourself the same thing. Why did I just do the thing that I just did? It's because we make these snap values-based decisions that this thing is going to get me what I want, it's gonna get me what I desire faster than any other way. We find ourselves one thing at a time slipping into this Roman six more than we'd like to admit. And we find ourselves a slave to impurity to ever-increasing wickedness, doing things that you're ashamed of, and that when you follow it to its end can only result in death. Paul talks about this as one form of service and something that you can give control of your life to, but he presents an alternative. He has slaves to wickedness and uh, that has its end in death, but then he offers this alternative, being a slave to righteousness. And being enslaved to righteousness compared to wickedness doesn't sound so bad. It's like this is, it doesn't take a lot to compel me to do anything but that. And so he offers a slave to righteousness, but when we misread this, we say, if I do bad stuff, I get bad results, but if I do good stuff, I get good results. So if I do the bad things, bad things happen. If I do good things, good things happen. And so we start stacking on our plate thing after thing after thing that we would say is righteous. I'm gonna read the Bible a little bit more. I'm gonna pray a little bit more. I'm gonna make sure that I'm in church every time the doors open. I'm never gonna miss a small group. All of the sudden, things start stacking on top of each other, on top of each other. I'm gonna make sure uh, that I I spend time with the, the five people I said I would spend time with. I pray for the seven people. I said I'd pray for, I would, yeah, I'd go to that outreach event, and I'd be in this, and all of a sudden, being a slave to righteousness sounds like another type of slavery even in itself, that you don't have control over yourself because you said, I'm just going to try and do the right thing. When we misread it, we try and do all of the Christian things with none of the Christian heart. We were at a new restaurant a couple of weeks ago, and Olivia, our two-year-old, uh, we, we were like getting our food, right? So we're putting the food down on the table and I will say, uh, as a pastor, an official pastor, fries are a little bit of a gray area if you pray before them or after them. It's like, it's sort of, the verdict's still out on fries. Like, are you, is it cool if I eat some fries, then pray? I don't know, it's kind of just whatever your conviction says. And so, so we're kind of a fry gray area family. Some, some people are like nabbing some fries and we say, okay guys, it's time to pray. Uh, and so we do and we're teaching Olivia how to pray. We pray, uh, you know, in, uh, throughout the day and, and whatnot. And so we say, do this and then close your eyes. Um, well, Olivia still has a fry in her hand. Um, and so instead of putting the fry down, she just keeps it in her hand. 
whatever, that's fine. It's just two. And so she goes, um, we, we go, okay, Jesus, bless the food. And, and I just, we just see out of the corner of our eye, she goes. <laughs> and we, and we're, anyone over here? And so we're trying not to laugh. We're just trying. I mean, we pretty much said, blessed, amen, because we're, we're cracking up at that point. I, I mean, her outside said pray. Her inside said fry. <laughs> like, I guarantee you, her, as much as a two-year-old's heart can be in a prayer, it was not. It, it, was, it was solely focused on how do I get this fry without closing or without opening my eyes? How can I get this fry from my hand to my mouth? Now, fine motor skills, 10 out of 10. Heart in it, zero. Uh, and so, impressed by her abilities, um, but still, we can be, you know, we can laugh at a two-year-old, but similarly, we can find ourselves doing spiritual things with unspiritual motives. That we find ourselves using our Bible app just to count the streak at the top to try and impress ourselves. And we find ourselves uh, in these situations where all of a sudden we went deeper than we wanted to go. And instead of us enjoying the life that God's created for us, we feel like it's closing in around us. When we read that scripture wrong, that's where it's destined to lead us, and it doesn't even sound that much better than the first. So so whether you're here in the room in Dixon online, and you're uh, completely like just living wild and out, living, you know, all the things I described of, of various sin and things you can find yourself, maybe that's you completely, unashamedly, but at the end of the day, I know God's gonna be cool with it, or maybe you find yourself in this other category where I'm just going to keep on going and going and going, but either of them come from the same problem. Our view of God is too small. Because if God can be cool with our sin or impressed with our abilities, that doesn't sound like a very big God to me. If any other faith uh, would look at a scripture like this. They probably have a version of it, or say the wages of sin is death. It might read something like this. The wages of sin is death, but the wages of good deeds is eternal life. But if all I need at the end of the day when I die and go into eternity, if all I need is 51%, that doesn't sound like a very big God. And our God is big. He's big and he's perfect. That's not our God. Our God is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere all the time. There's not a place that he isn't. He's omniscient. That means he knows everything all the time. There's nothing that he doesn't know or will not know. He's omnipotent. He can do anything. He's omnibenevolent, meaning he is infinitely good. There's never anything about him that isn't good. He's omnicompetent, meaning he's able to do anything and handle any situation. There is not anything God cannot do. This is our God. I think about it. Like I I used to think that if you study the Bible cover to cover, every verse in in the original language, and I spent every moment of every day learning everything about the Bible that I could finally, that someone could finally understand all of God. But let me just look really quick at what we really know about God. We have, uh, here I have a little bit of a graphic that I created, uh, and we have at the top an eternal God, a God that has no borders, no boundaries, and no ending. 
God who is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He existed before the beginning and will exist after the end. An eternal God who then had to humble himself just to fit in our reality. And so he humbles himself into the confines of space and time itself so that we could at all have a chance of getting a glimpse of him, uh, even close to perceiving him. And then even with that, we have uh, the way that he's uh, interacted with humanity. And if we had all of that recorded, we still would have just a taste of this big God, but we have 66 books of it. We have 66 books uh, that are somehow supposed to uh, encapsulate this eternal God. And so we say, what could be more encompassing than that? What about a human? And God says, Jesus, God made flesh. And here with Jesus, we have 33 years of an example of God on earth. We say, okay, well, if we examine every second of every day of Jesus's life, well, here's the thing. If we look at the unique events of the gospel, We have 229 events. I don't know about you or how close you are to the age 33, but 229 events goes pretty quick. If you're trying to describe every moment of my life or your life, we have this view of God that he can be understood. And we have this view of God that somehow if I try hard enough, then I will eventually come to its end, come to his end. And I will tell you, if you ever get there, it's simply a cue that you haven't scratched the surface. Because our God is eternal. It's, it's like everything that uh, is about us can be gauged. Uh, I think I'm done using the graphic. Everything that's within us can be gauged. We are more things this than we are this. You are maybe more loving than you are gracious or more uh, angry at times than you are uh, you know, greedy or, or whatever. Uh, if you took a personality test, it tells you you're this, this, this. God can't fit on a scale. Everything that's about him, he is infinitely that. He is infinitely loving. He is infinitely merciful. He is infinitely just. He's infinitely fair. He's infinitely self-sufficient. He's infinitely holy. And when we make God small, and we do that, we're saying, God, you can be cool with my life of sin, right? Or God, aren't you impressed by what I do? But a God that big doesn't sound like one that can just tolerate sin, and it doesn't sound like one who's impressed by the things that I can do. And this thing that started as just a, a trench between us and God has it, it widened into a, a, a chasm. That all of the sudden, this gap between us and God because we've created this deflated view of who God is and this inflated view of who we are, that the gospel is just this story of how God is pretty good and we're only, you know, a little bit good. And so God kind of makes up the difference, right? It's like I can, you know, almost touch the rim of a basketball hoop, but, you know, God can like kind of give me the extra boost. No, no, no. It's like if you're trying to hit the, the rim of the basketball hoop, like it's like the basketball hoop's on the moon. Like, it's it's not even close to this, like, I'm almost in, like, if you sin one time every day and you live to 75 years, that's almost, uh, that's 27,375 sins. 
One time a day, every day for 75 years. And it's not like, uh-oh, the cutoff's 25,000, you're 27,000. I'm so sorry, bro. Like, no, the cutoff is one. Like, God is completely holy. God is completely, and he's not just pure and holy, but he's fair. I don't want a judge that can be bribed. Like, I don't want a judge that lets something slide because he likes somebody or because he's somebody's uncle, he's somebody's friend. No, God isn't just fair, he's infinitely fair. So we have the outcome of slavery to sin, death, and the outcome of slavery to righteousness when, when it's only focused on the thing itself is empty in itself. And that's the world that we live in. You get what you earn, right? You get what you deserve. Um, if a wage is what you earn, if you work at McDonald's for two weeks, you expect a, a check, right? Because you did the work and now you earn your wage. And so the wage of this is death, the wage of this is still empty. And in two words, Paul, the writer of this passage, flips everything on its head. The gift. The name of this series, The Gift. And in The Gift, this gift drops a hand grenade in works-based righteousness. Because we want to say, I can do everything I can, and one day God's going to be impressed by me. One day God's going to realize I was worth uh, caring about. I was worth heaven. I was worth uh, being in this relationship with him. One day. But... God drops his hand grenade in this mindset, this paradigm, this worldview, and says it actually doesn't work like that. The gift. Rachel is so much better at giving gifts than I am. So much better. And and what's unfortunate for me uh, is Mother's Day comes before Father's Day, and her birthday comes before my birthday. So, she gets me a gift knowing what I already got her and still blows me out of the water. Jesus sees what we already brought him and still chooses to give this gift. He sees what we bring to the table, which in comparison with his bigness, his goodness, and his fairness is rags at best, but still, He chooses to give this gift. It says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because in the midst of this chasm lays a manger. And in that manger lies not just a baby, but God made flesh. God sending his rescue mission God sending not just his messenger, not just his number two, but God sending himself, realizing this gap was unbridgeable by you and I, that it didn't matter how hard we worked, didn't matter how good we tried, it didn't matter how much we hustled, how much we had grind, grit, how much we did, it didn't matter because we would never bridge this immeasurable gap between us and this holy, perfect, beautiful God, so he sent a manger 
not his number two, he sent himself to walk this life and in every area that our compulsion led us to become a slave to darkness, to wickedness, to evil. He looked at that and said, no, not for me. He lived this life in perfect obedience to God in every single way. If our score is 27,375, his score is zero. He comes into this relationship, this life in perfect relationship with God in its entirety and when the time came for him to meet his end on earth, he had two choices. He could follow how we roll, which is you get what you deserve. I deserve eternity with God. You want to talk about what I deserve? I spent my entire life living in accordance with every law that God ever put in place. I spent my entire life living a life that glorifies God. If we want to talk about what we deserve... He could say, I deserve eternity. eternity. I deserve a throne. I deserve a crown of gold, but instead I'm going to take a crown of thorns. And I look at what you deserve. It's not even close. But because... I'm not just infinitely holy and infinitely pure and infinitely fair. I'm infinitely loving. I'm infinitely merciful. I'm infinitely caring. I'm infinitely benevolent. And here, with one hand here and one hand here, Jesus takes the death that you and I deserve. That now hanging on a cross is God himself in the flesh. The only thing that can bridge the chasm that lays between us and God. Because of his sinless death, because of his sinlessness, death couldn't hold him. And when he rose three days later, it proved that the check he wrote cleared that he was who he said he was and that he actually wasn't just a guy, he wasn't just a prophet, he wasn't just a good man, but he was God himself, the creator of the human experience. And that is the gospel. The gospel is good news. It's good news. It's like, uh, like, do you remember the Geico commercials back in the day when it was like, I think they kind of ended the campaign, but it would be something catastrophically bad. It would be like, I'm sorry, your loved one isn't going to make it, but I have good news. I just saved a bunch of money on my car insurance by switching to Geico. And it's a joke because that good news is nothing compared to the problem that you had. But this good news is a little bit different. I think, I think that we can sometimes, though, find ourselves living out a Geico gospel where we go, oh, isn't the good news I was a bad person and now Jesus came and he was a good person, so now I'm a good person now, so I just I make sure I read my Bible and go to church and I shop at Christian businesses and I put a bumper sticker on my car, right? Yay, I'm a Christian, good news. Like, that's the life, you know, we can sort of like chuckle at it, but that's the life we can live sometimes, where we go, man, this is so good, I don't have to be sad when I used to be sad, you know, but I I love this quote, it said that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, he came to make dead people live. That now, when we realize this gospel, it's almost like the difference between a tofu and a warhead. Let me explain. I could leave it there, say amen, but you would just be wondering all day. 
Tofu takes on the taste of whatever it's put in with. And whatever seasoning you put on it and whatever you put around it, it, it starts to absorb and take on the taste of what it's around. And I think we can sometimes live out a tofu gospel where Jesus fits in with what we do. On the other hand, if you've ever had a warhead, probably not since the back of a public school bus is the main place where those are consumed. A warhead is the most sour thing uh, that you could possibly have. There is not a fiber in your body that does not know that you're experiencing a warhead in your mouth. There's not a piece of you that isn't aware of what's going on. And I wonder if sometimes we live out a tofu gospel instead of a gospel that changes every area of our life. That we realize we weren't just long gone, we were dead. We were dead in our sin, we had no hope, but all of a sudden Jesus in his goodness and in his mercy comes down and extends this rescue to us that now we live a life that's only transformed and not just getting by. But there's, there's two words that we can't get around. Paul begins this thought, this idea of slavery, and he ends it with a similar thought of giving somebody else control over the decisions that are made for your life and the way that you go. He says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And here's where we start to get uncomfortable. We like the Savior Jesus. We like the loving Jesus. But we have a little bit of a harder time with the Lord Jesus because if he's the Lord, that means he's the one in charge. If he's the one in charge, that means I'm not. And to that, I'll, I'll just say this. You've seen a picture already. I've talked about our two-year-old a lot, but here's another one. It, it would be, it wouldn't be in Olivia's best interest if she had complete unhindered freedom. If she had complete unhindered freedom, she would play in the street. If she had complete unhindered freedom, she would eat nothing but fruit snacks. If she had complete unhindered freedom, she would make decisions outside of what was best for her. And when this word comes in, being a slave to righteousness, Christ Jesus, our Lord, we have to realize who it is that we're giving the keys to the car. That we're not just giving these keys to a good driver. We're giving these keys to the one who designed the car made the car, built the car, tested the car, that now it's in more than capable hands, it's in creator hands. That no one knows how to live a perfect human life, a life of fulfillment and joy and love more than God himself. When we say, uh, Jesus, you're Lord, we're accepting his gift of lordship. We're accepting that the human, the creator of the human experience is offering to give us guidance and direction. When we say, Jesus, your Lord, we're saying, God, you can have it all because you gave so much more than I could ever give myself. The creator of the human experience is offering to take the wheel because Jesus came.
Jesus came not just to exchange your bad deeds for his good deeds, but exchange your shame for his honor, to exchange your fear for his protection. That when we were oppressed, he came to be our rescuer. And when we were downtrodden and shameful, he came to restore us to what we were created to be. That we now are seen as righteous. Now we're seen as honorable. Now we're seen as victorious. That when God sees us, he sees Jesus. When he was the substitute for you and I, he took our place and offered us his. Would you stand with me? The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. If, if God wasn't perfect, our imperfections wouldn't be such a big deal. But he is, so they are. And when we look at this gap between us and God, the only hope that we see in the middle is not how good we are, is not how much hustle or grind we have, but it's the cross of Jesus that makes a way. And I don't know where you are today, whether you're here in the room or Dixon or online, wherever you stand on this scale, as you take a spiritual inventory and you look at where things stand, your priority level, your, your, your values that you make decisions based on. I don't know where you stand, but I just know that this message of Jesus calls for a response. We can either say, no, thank you. I'm gonna stick with my own way. Or we can humbly come to Jesus and say, I don't deserve what you did. God, you saw me at my worst. Lord, you saw me when I was doing something you, I know that I shouldn't have been doing. God, you saw me when I was thinking stuff I know that I shouldn't have been thinking. God, you saw it because you're omnipresent. You're everywhere all the time. You were there. But you came and you died anyway. And now he's offering more than eternal life in the sense that you just, you live forever. He's not just offering for heaven when you die, he's offering for heaven now. That this word eternal that he's using, it, it, it talks about not just a, a timeline-based eternity, but something that is both timeline-based as well as outside and parallel to time. That there's a new reality that you're living in when you say yes to Jesus. When you say yes, God, I'm not putting my faith in what I used to do. I'm not putting my faith in what I can do. God, I'm putting my faith in you and you alone, realizing that there's no hope for me any other way. When we say yes to Jesus, that's all that it means to say that you're putting faith in Jesus. I'm putting my trust in you, God. I'm putting my trust in your ability to do it because I know I'm so far from the mark. I know I can't do it. Let's take a moment and just close our eyes. If you're in the ministry team, would you please come down and stand here in the front? But just take a, take a moment and let's do some spiritual inventory. Just ask yourself, maybe you've been in this uh, Christianity thing for a long time. Are you living out a tofu gospel or a warhead gospel? 
Are you living the adventure that God calls you to? Are you living as a, a resident of heaven now? And maybe something clicked today that hasn't clicked before. And just like this message requires a response, you're ready to respond today. And something's happening in you. Your heart's beating a little bit faster. There's maybe a warmth. There's something that says, I feel like words are speaking directly to me. Uh, It's not just about me, but it's to me. And if that's you, it's the Holy Spirit in you right now. He's knocking on the door. He's a gentleman. He's not banging down the door. He's knocking on the door saying, let me in. Because I want to give you a new life. It's available today. The gift is on the table. If you're here, at, at least in the room, and, and you say, that's not the gospel I've been living. You've already made a decision at some point to, to follow Jesus or to be a Christ follower at some level, but that doesn't sound like the gospel you've been living. I wanna pray for you now, Jesus, thank you that you died. God, thank you that you rose again. God, thank you that you're not a little God that offers a little salvation or a little eternal life, but God, you are infinite, you are holy, God, you are unending, and you offer us that same kind of eternal life. Help us live that kind of gospel that touches every area of our life. And maybe you're here in the room and you realize that this story of Jesus doesn't sound the way you've heard it before. There's something tugging at you and you need to respond. I would actually even ask you to take an even bolder step. Just let's, reminder, just close your eyes, bow your head with nobody looking but me. If that's you and you say either, I need to say yes to Jesus for the very first time or I need to come back to Jesus because I've been living my own way. Would you be so bold as just me and you looking, the Holy Spirit's here. Would you raise your hand? Just as a sign of of surrender, as a sign that you need to say, yes, I see you, thank you, thank you. I'll give you one more chance, just go ahead, thank you. If that's you, whether you raise your hand or not, Just go ahead and pray in your mind or under your breath. Jesus, thank you that you came and you came for me. You lived a life I couldn't live and you died the death I deserve. I believe that you are God and I accept this gift of salvation. Help me live for you and only for you for the rest of my life. In the name of Jesus, amen.